All right. Today, we're continuing our journey through the book of John. If you uh, were with us in the spring, we, uh, we started our journey through, a two-year journey through the Gospel of John, and so we're covering this in, in much detail as we kind of comb through this book, and we're seeking to paint an accurate picture of who is Jesus, and that's, that's what we want to answer. Who, who is Jesus? And, and a lot of us, we said in our introduction to this book of the Bible that we all, knowingly or not, have an image in our mind when it comes to Jesus. When I, when I say Jesus, and I say that in the context of a group setting, there's many different images that probably come to mind. Some of these portraits are very clear, some of them are very robust, and some of them come from spending several hours with the subject. We would say, I've, I've studied Jesus, I know Jesus, I walk in relationship with Jesus, I've read the, this word, I've, I've seen these portraits, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in, in our Bibles are, 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 are illustrations of the life and ministry of Jesus, and so we can, we can know Jesus. We don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder what he's like, we, we can go to his word, and, and we can discover who is Jesus, and the word tells us, and, and we can discover that for ourselves. And, and there's many who have a, a foreign idea of when it comes to Jesus. We, we just have really no idea. We, we have some ideas about Jesus. We think Jesus is this way, and hopefully through our time together, we're correcting some of that, and that's Christians and non-Christians alike. Some of us have this idea that, that Jesus is very stern, that Jesus is very harsh, and, and we have this picture that Jesus is just ready to come at us. He's a judge. He's someone who wants to just throw our sin in our face, and so we want to kind of stiff arm Jesus, and we say, hey, we want, we want Jesus to be over here, and we want to keep safe distance from Jesus, and some of us have a very approachable Jesus, and so approachable like Jesus is our buddy. And, and we lose this sense that Jesus may actually want to speak into our life and point out the areas of sin in our life and point out the areas that, that could really set us free. And so we, we can easily have these, these kind of two different spectrums and, and views, and we all need to deal with them. Who is Jesus? And, and that's what John's gospel is about, all about Jesus. So we jumped into this book of John uh, in the spring, and we've probably five to six weeks into the, the gospel of John, and we find ourselves only at the end of chapter two, okay? And, and if, if you're here and, and you're like, hey, that, that seems crazy, like you, you've been in the gospel of John, and we're two chapters in after five to six weeks, here's the thing, in 2024, all right, we're going to, the Easter of 2024, we get to the resurrection 20 chapters in. So, like, I'm talking detail here. We're, we're, we're really navigating this with some great depth. Let me tell you and kind of catch you up. If you're jumping in today, we got a lot of new folks here. We're so thankful you're here. Let me give you a little bit of introduction of, of kind of where we find ourselves. Uh, in John chapter 1, 1 through 18, is kind of the, the prologue. It's kind of the introduction to the book of John. In 1 through 18, it says, here are the things that you're going to discover in reading this book. And so it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so right out of the gates, we see Jesus is not just this awesome teacher and character. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he came and he dwelt among us. Jesus came and he walked the earth. He walked and, and we, people were in the presence of Jesus. They walked with Jesus. Jesus was the true light. 
He was the true light coming into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. He has given people an invitation to follow him. We saw in those early chapters that Jesus would come and he called people and he said, come and follow me. And and we learned what it really meant to be a a disciple of Jesus and what it meant to, to follow Jesus. We see that there's another guy, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, not not John that wrote this letter, but another guy, John the Baptist, who came as a forerunner to Jesus. He came to testify to the work of Jesus. And people are like, are you Jesus? And he's like, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Christ. And, but that's Jesus. And people left John to go and follow Jesus. And so John just spent his whole life pointing people to Jesus. And I love that illustration. Of, and, and that's hopefully who we seek to be. We just want to point people to Jesus, point people to the reality of Jesus. And then Jesus called disciples to follow him. They became apprentices of Jesus. They went where Jesus went. They did what Jesus did. They were disciples. We see some of the first miracles of Jesus, Jesus turning water into wine. And these weren't just like offhanded, like, oh, he he did that miracle and he did this. They were very specific. So he took jars that were meant for purification for making yourself clean. And he he fills it with wine, wine that would be symbolic of his blood. And ultimately, it would be this picture at the end that we would see that Jesus's death and, and, and crucifixion would ultimately, his blood being spilled would actually be the very thing that makes us clean. It's beautiful. And then we see Jesus coming into the temple, and he's upset because we see Jesus here, the, the people were taking advantage. They were selling animals at ridiculous prices. They were selling things because the sacrificial system would, you would bring an animal to sacrifice and that would atone for the sins. But we see that Jesus, that would be a picture that Jesus was cleansing the temple of this old sacrificial system and would bring about a whole new sacrificial system, one that would be uh, for all time, that he would be put to death and he would rise again and that sacrifice would be good once for all. There would be no need for a priest. There would be no need for more sacrifices to be brought. And so we see Jesus bring about this. And, And really, ultimately, we got to this point where we see Jesus is on a mission to reform the religious and seek the rebellious to reform the rebe- re- religious and seek the rebellious. And, and what we find ourselves is right after the temple cleansing. And we, and we got these sentences here, and, and, and it's interesting because these are kind of throwaway sentences at first glance, right? None of God's word is, 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 is worth like just throwing away. But you can easily read through this text and kind of just run right past them. If you've ever read the genealogies, and you're like, oh my gosh, just name after name after name of generation of generation generation. Whenever you get to that, like if you're in a Bible reading plan, you're like, okay, we'll skip this day. And you know, you'll move on. But there is so much there. And, and there's so much. So we have like three to four verses right here at the end of John chapter two that are so essential that we were like, hey, let's spend a day focusing on, on, on these few uh, verses. Why is this here? Why do we have this? And so, Levi read the text to us this morning, and it starts off in, in John 2, 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. And this is John basically saying, like he's writing the narrative of the story, and then he kind of pauses, knowing that people are going to read this later on. He's like, hey, just in case people are going to remember what Jesus said long, long after this, 
And I just want you to remember this. All right, back to the story. That's kind of what he's doing here. So 22 is a transition sentence. And it gets into 23. And he says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. So that's why all these people were gathered in the temple. Like they were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. They're all there. And it says many believed. And this is, this is what we're going to jump into. This is the, where we're going to kind of find ourselves. As a way of starting, um, you're like, hey, you're already 10 minutes in. I, I get it. Hang on. I tell you, there's a lot here. All right? How many of you have ever purchased a home before? All right? You bought a home? You keep, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Right, how many of you want to buy a home? You want to buy a home? You're like, yeah, but have you seen the prices out there? It's crazy, right? And interest rates, it's wild, right? Um, I, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some tips this morning on purchasing a home. Now, I, I'm an expert at this. Uh, many of you may not know, I do real estate as a way of one. I, I got into real estate as a way of just helping people plant their lives in the valley and wanted people to be here for long term. I wanted people to love where they live. I also did it because I wanted to be sustainable in this. And I'm like, hey, I don't want to have to stop doing ministry here. So I need to find another way to sustain life here. And, and so I'm, I'm like, I'm going to get in real estate and I'm going to do this. Now, I say all that. There's some important steps when you go to purchase a home, okay? The, the important steps, it, how many of you, when you purchase a home, it was an emotional process for you, right? You're like, oh, it's so weighty. It's so hard. Here's why, right? It can weigh on people. You look and look and look and look, and then you walk in and you find that perfect home. You're like, oh, this is great. You can imagine yourself having family dinner around the table, looking out the front window at your neighbors, and the neighborhood's so nice. And you know what? Like that wall, it measures 85 inches, which is perfect for the couch. And you're just, you're laying it out. Like you have the whole vision of how this house is going to be laid out. And it is beautiful. It's gorgeous. You're looking at all the finishes, the tile, the paint. You're looking at all the, you know, little door handles, and they're all so specific. And people have really polished up this home. And it's so good. And, and so if you're fortunate, you, you write an offer on that home and that offer gets accepted. And then we call in an inspector. Okay. You hire an inspector and the inspector comes in and the job of the inspector is to see all the things that you didn't see. Right. How many of you, you love the home and then you walked in with an inspector and you're like, Hey, did you see this? And you're like, Oh, I didn't even look up there. Right. Like I was just like, Look at the car. It's so clean. It smells so good. Like, and the paint, like, it's fresh. Like, this home is brand new. And you didn't look up, and there's like a gaping hole in the ceiling, right? And, and so, like, we, we're trained. Like, we, we're, we don't see all these things. And so we need someone with an outside perspective who's not emotional in the home buying process to come in and give us a, an accurate picture of this home. And, and not only that, but they kind of go below the surface, Right? Like, we have no way of seeing behind the walls to see if there's moisture in the walls. We have no way of telling if the plumbing's just right, the electrical's just right. We probably didn't pull out a ladder and climb up on the roof and look at the granules of the shingles. Like, we, we didn't do that, right? We're just, like, so intrigued with the fact that they got a mowing faucet in the, in the kitchen. It's beautiful, right? And, and, and so someone comes in and wrecks all your dreams, Right? They're like, hey, just so you know, like the backside of the house is probably going to you know, fall into an earth crack, and uh, you know, the roof needs total repair, and uh, you know, the electrical, it's all you know, old wiring, and it's not going to make it, 
and, and you're like, um, just your heart's sinking. And you're like, oh, man. And as he walks through and he points out all these areas of concern, maybe you're, you're kind of going like, man, I wish I never knew those things, right? I wish I, wish I never knew them because it's just so unsettling. But his job was to help you see what you couldn't see. And the reality is, is we're better off for it. We're better off for it. And here's what I want you to see, because in this text, what Jesus is going to say is, Jesus is able to see what we don't see. Jesus is saying, hey, there's something up with your house. There's something, like, on the outside, the exterior, it looks all right. Like, everything, like, you've believed, and and it looks like the external just, it fits, But there's something internally, there's something going on here, there's something wrong with this idea of faith that that he's going to begin to question, and and we're better off for it. And it doesn't seem like it could be comforting that God is all-knowing and that Jesus knows the hearts of man. But I want you to see that Jesus, knowing your heart, is such a gift. It's such a gift. He wants us to know that below the surface of our home, there are some issues to be aware of. He can see some things that we can't see. Here's what I want you to keep in mind as we read this. God is always working for our good. He's always working for our good. He's always working for your good. Everything that we wrestle with in the text, and we're like, man, that just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Please hear me. He's always working for your good. Everything that's been brought into your life, everything that God's done in your life is always for your good. And he's after your heart. And he wants to set you free. So Jesus is going to reveal some things about his nature to help us do that today. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Here's the first point. Not all faith is real faith. Not all faith is real faith. Now, I don't, I don't mean to cause you to doubt your faith this morning. I hope to... Uh, secure you in your faith this morning is really my hope and desire. This may sound troublesome as we kind of jump out of the gates here. Not all faith is real faith, Um, but I think it's important. Jesus has given us this as a warning. It says, many believed, verse 23, many believed. Uh, We've seen anywhere from the fact that there there is 400,000 people traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover to the fact that the city may have millions to upwards of 3 million people in the city. And it's saying they're seeing Jesus, they're hearing Jesus do these things. And verse 23 says, many believed. And and we may want to celebrate that. Like, oh, that's celebratory. Like, many believed in Jesus. Isn't that like what we're about, like we're, we're wanting to see people move to belief and faith in Jesus. We want people to trust, like know Jesus and, and believe in him. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 15, we see after the life and ministry of Jesus, it tells us, it kind of gives a snapshot of the disciples in Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 15, it says, there's only 120 disciples. Now, 
We, some would say that that's just who was in Jerusalem, but he's preached to thousands. He's preached to, we see Jesus feeding 5,000 on a hillside, and it says, many believe, many follow him. But in Jerusalem, at the very, like we have 120 people. What, what's going on here? There must be something happening between this idea of many believing, and even we read in John chapter 20, the purpose of the gospel of John was what? That people would believe. So there's something at play here. There's something not right in the sense that many are believing. And the purpose of John's gospel is that it was written so that many would believe. But Jesus is not entrusting himself to this group of people. John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we're like, we're, we're told we want to believe in Jesus, but these people believed in Jesus, and, and it ultimately says that, that Jesus, there was something faulty with their faith. They have faulty faith. How do we know that? And you, you don't see this in the English translation. Like, we're reading English words here, okay? And, but the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. And in the Greek language, where it says, Many believed, the word believed in the Greek there is pisteo, means faith. It says many believed. The very next line it says, and Jesus didn't entrust himself, and entrust, the same word is there, pisteo, believed. So what the literal translation of this is, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. That's kind of, that's troublesome. What's going on here? Like, I don't want to be a part of that group of people. Like, I want to be the type of people that Jesus believes in. I want to be the people that Justin believed in Jesus and Jesus believed in him. There was a relationship. There was a trust. What's going on? There's faulty faith. But remember, Jesus is the inspector, right? He's looking deep. In, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so here we see, like the external looks good. There's behaviors that, that kind of resemble like that they believe in Jesus. But Jesus says, I never knew you. That's a great warning. Like, is that us? I would want to know, like, if, if we're saying, hey, I'm believing in Jesus, I'm trusting in Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, I don't believe in you, I'm like, oh, well, oh, let's get this right. What's going on? It's a great warning to us. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, okay, talking about David, young David, and it's like, eh, is David the guy? Is David the guy? And he says, do not look on his appearance or the height or stature because I've rejected them. For the Lord does not see as the man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's something that Jesus can see in the heart of these people that, that he says is not right. And he's not willing to entrust himself to them because he knows what is in the heart of a man. And so what we see here is this idea of what I would call believing versus following. Okay? Okay? Believing versus following. Many 
commentators, so when, so when I study and prepare for, for sermons, like, I do a lot of, of in-depth, like, research and, and trying to seek, like, what, what is it? What's happening here? One of the things that many of the commentators on this passage spoke to was the fact that the word for believe here is past tense. They, many believed. It was a past tense thing they did in the past. Like, here in this time, I believed and went on about my life. Versus the way that, that most of the word, like 85 times the word belief is used in John's gospel, it's like an ongoing tense. That, it, that it's not something that just happens once in a, in a period of time, but something that would continue over the extent of your life. So it's not like, hey, I look back and I go, you know what? I got baptized when I was 12 years old and I believed in Jesus and then I moved on from that. But it's a constant ongoing and outworking of belief in Jesus. That every day we wake up and we go, do I believe in Jesus? And that's what I talk about, like believing, meaning like we move to a place of like intellectual knowledge of Jesus and go like, yeah, I believed in him towards like, I'm actually committing my life to him and I'm actually going to follow him, that we keep on believing, that we keep on trusting. And there seems to be something that Jesus isn't willing to trust in us. There's something and he's asking for us to continue to put our continual trust in him, our continual belief in him. And I think it's easy for us at times to we want Jesus to be king because it says they saw the signs. And signs can be signposts that point us to Jesus, and they're helpful in that way. But signs can also, the miraculous, can be things that detract us from Jesus, and we become so focused on the sign. We're so focused on what Jesus does that we don't actually follow Jesus for who he is. And so we see in this aspect of, of Jesus, like some of us, we want Jesus to be king, but we don't want him to actually be king over our life. We want him to rule, but as long as that doesn't actually have to do anything with him ruling or telling me what to do. We want him to be Lord when it comes to working for my good, but we don't want him to be Lord when it means for me to, to, to respond or react in a way that is difficult. So it's a difference between believing and truly following. Like following means I'm, I'm entrusting my life to him. You know, the demons believe James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They're scared of Jesus. They're scared of God. They know Jesus, right? Demons believe in him. Demons believe in Jesus, but demons aren't following Jesus. They haven't entrusted their lives to Jesus. We see this in the next passage, the story of Nicodemus that we're going to cover here in following weeks. It says, this man came to Jesus by night in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, Jesus, they knew he was a teacher. They believed in Jesus. Nicodemus says, teacher, you know, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So he acknowledges these things, right? Nicodemus believed in Jesus, but he, he hadn't entrusted his life to Jesus to follow him. They want the benefits of Jesus without the relationship with Jesus, right? They love the miracles of Jesus. They want to see more of that until it comes to a place where it actually costs them to follow Jesus. That's where Jesus talks about the cost of following him, the cost of discipleship. And it says many, are, many disciples left at that point. That's what it means to, to entrust yourself. In John chapter 6, verse 24, 
You know what's happening in John chapter, ch- chapter, uh, ch- chapter 5 and chapter 6? Feeding to the 5,000, right? Everyone's getting their fill. Verse 24 says, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got in the boats, they went after seeking Jesus. What were they seeking? Said when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? He said, truly I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I I filled your belly. You're not really seeking me. You're just seeking what I have to give. It says in verse 64 of John but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus looked into the heart. He, he kind of portrayed this picture of Judas. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it, would, who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus pointed it out. He pointed out, you're, just, you're following me for what I, what I have to give, not for who I am. There's a difference what I would also knowing versus following, like really entrusting your life to Jesus. There's a difference between knowing and knowing. Like, oh, I know Jesus. I know Jesus, right? I attend Church of the Valley every Sunday. I go to a community group occasionally. I show up, you know, serve a little bit. I know Jesus. But do you know Jesus? It's this difference between knowing and knowing. It's, it's the difference between like having proximity to Jesus and having a personal relationship with Jesus. And John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman, right? J- Jesus meets her. She's kind of the outcast of society and Jesus shows up, engaging her in conversation. She talked about the things of Jesus. She talked about the work of Jesus. People say you can worship here on this mountain and that mountain. And Jesus revealed himself to her. He said, I'm the person you speak about. So she had proximity to Jesus, but she didn't know Jesus. And she meets Jesus at this well. She has this this personal encounter with Jesus. And it changes her. My question is, do do we know Jesus not know about Jesus, we know Jesus. I recently heard Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas, he said, you know, there's two categories of people, followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. That's the only two categories. Followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. There's not a category for casual church attender. So you're either a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus. You either know about Jesus or you truly know Jesus. You know him. And that's why a few weeks ago, I, I kind of uh, shared some, some Barna research about, you know, 50% of people in America tick the box that says, I'm a Christian. But when they actually began to, to look and, and see if there was any fruit, it's like 8%, 8% of people. There's a lot of people who say, I know about Jesus, I know about church, I know about Christianity, but actually 8% of people in America follow Jesus. I just remodeled a, a home at my office this past week, and I was hanging pictures on the wall, and, and finally was like going to the closet of all these things that I've never hung on the wall, and I'm like, hey, I want to hang this up. And one of those is a giant framed Texas Longhorn jersey of Colt McCoy, all right? Now, Colt McCoy hasn't had a great professional career, all right? But when I was a student ministry in, in, in student ministry in Texas, 
I invited Colt McCoy to come and talk to my student ministry when he was playing for the University of Texas. So Colt McCoy came in. He spent the weekend at our church. I got a jersey signed by him, Texas number 12. Colt McCoy wrote his Colossians passage on it, signed a, another, like the invitation of, 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 that we sent out to everybody. Like signed that. So I got these things, and I was like, man, I should hang these on the wall. Like, this is the first time. But uh, I don't know why I would, you know, like professional career hasn't been great. You know, he's playing backup for the Arizona Cardinals now, you know. So, uh, like, to highlight this, why would I highlight this? And the thing is, is, like, I could, I could show you that jersey and be like, man, I know Colt McCoy, but I don't know Colt McCoy. I know about Colt McCoy. I know some facts about Colt McCoy. I know he's played 51 games since he's been in professional career and it hasn't been so great, right? Like, and I had to look up these details, right? So I, I know, you can know about someone and not know someone. And, and this is the reality of going, they, they believe, they experienced Jesus, but they didn't know him. And in John chapter 4, this story of the Samaritan woman, this, this woman knew Jesus. How do we know that? Verse 29, it says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, how many of us, that would be something we praise? Like that we would say, hey, you wouldn't believe I met a guy today who knows all that I ever did. We'd want to keep that secret, probably. We probably wouldn't want to share that with everyone. And we're probably like, hey, we don't want that guy getting out because like he knows everything I've ever did. Don't share that with anybody. Like there's a sense of secrecy because to be exposed in that way means we possibly may not be loved. And that's fearful for many of us. So how do we know if our faith is real? Because, I mean, we see that there's a sense where it says many believed and Jesus didn't believe in them. And I'm like, man, I don't want to be a part of that category. How do I know if my faith is real? Not all faith is real faith. Well, I would say one is, is your belief in Jesus a destination or a journey? Is it a destination or a journey? Is it something that you look back and go, hey, this happened one time, you know, I I got baptized at that Baptist church, you know, back when I was eight years old and chalk it up like that's that, you know, that's that's the external religious activity I, I walked through and we're good, right? But no, it's like an ongoing belief. Am I growing in my belief of Jesus? Am I growing in my knowledge and understanding of Jesus and entrusting more and more of my life to him? We talk about Jesus being Lord. I used to talk to students all the time. Like, he's the head coach. He gets to tell you what to do. You're like, well, I don't, I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. Well, then, like, you don't want Jesus. Jesus is the boss, and he knows everything, and he knows the plan for your life. And that's why when I brought these guys up and, and I prayed for them as they head to college, I... I quoted Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 because we want to trust in the Lord with all his understanding, not my own understanding. I have a very limited view of what's going to happen in the next five minutes, right? But Jesus sees it all, and I just didn't trust my life to him. I'm going to follow him. Is your belief in Jesus a destiny? Has it been tested? Has your faith been tested? First Peter says that we're tested in our faith. One of the ways our faith is tested is through suffering. That we see that it, does it produce, does it stand the trials of life? Is Jesus that place of refuge? In Job chapter 2 verse 10, we see that Job's, Job's friends, if you've ever read the book of Job, a lot of terrible stuff happens to Job. And we, we read about Job and, and, and a lot of his friends were like, hey, you should be mad at God. You should curse God and die. And Job basically tells his friends and tells his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? His faith was tested. Is he going to stand against that? Is he going to stand in the midst of it? Do you see fruit? Bible says there, there's fruit of the Spirit. There's fruit of the Spirit's work in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those characteristics evidence of, in, in your life? Those are evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Has your faith moved from the fact that He is the Lord of salvation to the Lord of your life? Like I think a lot of us, I think when I came to faith in Jesus, I'm like, I just don't want to spend eternity in hell. And so, that's fearful, and that's the reality for those who die apart from Jesus, is that we spend eternity separated from God in a real literal place called hell, and that's not a popular message, and I'm like, hey, I don't want to go there, so what do I need to do? And there's a sense of going like, we, we love to have like the fire insurance of going like, I just don't want to spend eternity apart from him, but I don't necessarily want to give my life to him. And that's where he's, he's seeking to move us. Are you inviting his light to shine into the dark places of your life? Are you asking, hey, God, come be the inspector of my life. Come search my heart. Know me. Show me. Reveal the things to me that are not of you because I know that you're working for my good and you want to set me free. So come and do that. That's what I want. The last thing that I want to show you in this text is this. In Jesus, we are known and loved. In Jesus, we are known and loved. Okay? Verse 24 says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So there was something there. He knew he would not believe in them. He would not entrust himself to them. He needed no one to bear witness about him. He didn't need somebody to come and tell him like, hey, here's Billy's resume. You know, he's a great guy. You know, he attends church, you know, about 85% of the time, ties regularly, you know, faithful guys. I, help, I saw him help an old lady across the street one time. Like he needs no one to, to come bearing testimony about you. He knows you. He knows all about you. He knows what is in a man. And yet he loves you. He loves you. I want to read some passages. Psalm 139, 1 through 3. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give an account. John 21, 17, talking about Peter, reinstating Peter to the faith. He said to him third time, Simon, son of John, Jesus speaking, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Acts 1, 24, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like they're trying to figure out like who's gonna step in and take the role of the disciples and, and like, think about if you were in a hiring situation, okay? And, and, and you're there and you're, you're like, hey, I got two good candidates. Lord, you know them all, all right? Show me which one is gonna be the fit. Like, show me. That's what they're praying for. You know the hearts of them. Show me which one you want. First John 3.20, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. He knows everything. That's scary. Anybody scared by that? Like, that's fearful. It said naked and exposed. None of us want to be naked and exposed, right? Because we al align ourselves with the belief that says to be naked and exposed 
means to make ourselves vulnerable. And in that sense of vulnerability, there's a good chance that we may not be loved and accepted. There's a good chance that with that sense of exposure, that not only like we, that, that there would be people who stiff arm us. There'd be people who keep us at arm lengths. But Jesus knows all things. There's no secrets from Jesus. There's no hidden thoughts from Jesus. There are others, uh, you know, we can pretend in front of one another, but not Jesus, right? You're fully known. You're fully known. I think back when Amber and I started dating, okay? Like, there's a sense of going like, I'm not going to be 100% vulnerable, right? Like, I want to be the cool guy. I want, I want her to know all the great qualities and none of the bad qualities, right? And we do that in relationships. We do that in friendships. We do that in job interviews. We, we want everything, like, let's, let's fill the table with all the great qualities. But the inspector Jesus comes in and reveals those areas of our life, and we're like, oh, I don't want those things to be known. But what I want you to see is there's freedom in that. There's freedom in, in allowing Jesus to search the depths of our heart and to be known. Gavin Ortland says, uh, suppose your skeptical, skeptical friend says, I don't like the idea of someone knowing everything about me, even God. It leaves me with no privacy whatsoever. How would you respond? Here's what he said. I would certainly agree that the omniscience of God, omniscience, omni-science, it basically means omni, all, he knows all. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows all. He said, I would certainly agree that the omniscience of God lays us bare before him. To those who are oblivious to or comfortable with sin and want to live in it without any interference from God, his omniscience leaves them with nowhere to hide. That's very uncomfortable. What a disturbing thought. But to those who are burdened by sin and want to escape its clutches, God's omniscience means that he fully knows their repentant heart. He fully knows your cry for forgiveness. He fully knows your commitment of their cause to him. And such relief dispels their perennial guilt and nagging shame. This is Jesus. Jesus wants to set you free from that. Jesus wants you to be able to step. He wants to shine that light that we read about in John chapter 1 into the dark corners of our life so that we can be set free. Let me tell you how that works. Last week, I went to a, a conference in San Diego. And I went as, uh, I, I get the opportunity with Acts 29, which is the network we're a part of, uh, to serve as the pastoral care pastor support team. And what that means is there's 500 plus churches in our Acts 29 network in the United States. And I get to serve on the West team with three other guys caring for the 123 pastors in the West, which means I get to call up and engage with their elders, engage with their pastors, and, and talk to them and go like, hey, what's happening not like, how's your church? Your church growing? Is it healthy financially? No, like, how are you doing at a soul level? Like, how's your heart? How's your love for Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you pursuing Jesus? All of us got in ministry because we love Jesus, but it got hard. And, and we're struggling that. How's your marriage? Are, are you encouraged? And, and so I went last week thinking we were going to be given tools to use for other people, right? And what did I get? I went and found tools that really searched around and clinked around in my heart. 
And what the Lord did in me in like three or four days was reveal and expose some areas of my life that's like, man, like, have I entrusted that to Jesus? Have I really trusted him with that? Do, is there a sense of going like, and he began to open it and lay bare. And, and while that's uncomfortable in the moment, it's freeing. It's so freeing. It's so freeing for God to, to come in and, and work in the midst of that. We need other people to help reveal those areas. Jesus will do it. If we come and we ask him, we invite him, Jesus, come in, search my heart. He'll show me the things. He'll show me where my faith isn't real. He'll show me those areas where he, that I haven't entrusted fully over to him and where he's not trusting me, but he wants to, he desires to. Because that's the great thing about Jesus is Jesus doesn't say like, hey, he doesn't just say like, let me expose all this stuff. He says, I'm gonna expose all this stuff, but then I'm gonna let you know, hey, I died for all that stuff so you can be free of it. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is going, hey, you don't have to hide. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in guilt. And, and there's things in our heart, like I was, I was reading a guy, it's just like the heart is an abyss. We don't even have an, we don't have an understanding. Who can understand it? We, we have no idea. There are things in us we don't even know. And Jesus wants to explain. He knows all things. So when we get curious about our life, God, reveal those things. Show me those things. I want to be more freed up. I want to be more in love with you. I want to be fully known by you. I want to be your son. I want to be fully loved by you. That just comes like presenting our life before him and allowing him to look into us and go like, hey, what about this, Harry? I'm like, man, I give you that. I give you that. I just want to be free from that. I have a friend who called me up recently, and he, he basically, in a, in a nutshell, said, hey, I'm seeking some fresh clarity on who I am, what's true of me, and how I can be most helpful to people in life. And I love that. He just called me up and said, hey, I just want fresh, who am I? Help me understand. Like, I know there's Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and all this stuff we can go to, but like, we can go to Jesus. He knows all. He knows our hearts. And while our hearts condemn us, he doesn't. He reveals those areas just to give over to him. He just wants us to entrust it to him. So if you want to know who you are, like if we want to know our hearts, we go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. We go to his word. We allow his word to expose us. We allow community to expose us. We invite people like I do with Robert Marshall who spoke here with us last week and said, hey, will you speak into my life? And he told me something last week. Honestly, it led into being in San Diego. He goes, hey, I feel like I see this in you and, and I feel like you're always struggling with this. I'm like, oh man, thanks for letting me know. Does it hurt in the moment? Yeah, but it's freeing. It frees us up to walk with Jesus. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us then while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Guess what? You, you can't hide from God. God knows all your sins and God still loves you. That's amazing. You can't hide from God. God knows all. He sees all, and he loves you. He died not when you got it all together. Not when you kind of like dusted yourself off and like, man, I'm going to get myself to church. Like, and I got my Bible. I'm ready to go. Like, here we are. He's like, hey, I can see through this. I want your heart. I don't want just your attitudes. I don't want your behaviors. I want your heart. I want your life. He knows who you are. He knows where you struggle. He knows your failures. 
He knows every aspect of your life and he loves you. He knows your struggle with sin and he loves you. Jesus doesn't just show up and reveal the areas. He gives us a way out. I'll close with this. We were in Park City last night and was making the drive back down the valley. And uh, as I was driving home, I was just thinking on this passage. And, and typically that's the rhythm as, like, as I'm preparing towards Sunday. I'm just allowing this passage to just kind of marinate in my life all week. And a thought came to my mind as I was driving home. And as I began to look back and I saw the water to wine and we saw the temple and then we see like where he goes in John chapter uh, 3 with Nicodemus and the religious leader and John chapter 5, he says, I'm the bread of life. He keeps transforming these ideas. And I go, the story keeps unfolding. And I'm like, where, where does this passage take us further into the story? And, I, and it, it says, like you start reading through this lens and it says, And he needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, and it rolls right into the next passage. And I go, this is an illustration. This is an illustration of what he's trying to depict. And what we have in the life of Nicodemus is this. He's someone who is loved but not known. How do we know that? Nicodemus is a religious leader. He does everything by the books. He's loved for it. He's held in high regard. People respect him. But deep down in his life, Jesus sees the heart. Jesus engages him and says, you got to be born again. There's something that needs to happen in your life. Nicodemus is someone who is loved but not known. There are some of us in the room who we feel loved because we've put up barriers in our life to not reveal the sore spots of our life and we feel loved, but we know it's phony. We can see right through it. So we don't truly feel loved. But then I go to the next story, the Samaritan woman, and I go, here's someone who is known and not loved. She's known in her culture. She's known for for her past. She's known for her sinfulness. She's known And because of it, she's the outcast of society. And she's known but not loved. And what I want to share with you, only in Jesus, only in Jesus can we be fully known and fully loved. Only in Jesus can we be fully known and fully loved. If you're here this morning, Jesus is telling you, Jesus is speaking to you. He knows you and he says, I love you. I love you. That's freeing. You can be fully known and fully loved. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we, we do want to, we want to be known. All of us want to be accepted. All of us want to be loved. And Lord, only you can free us. Only, only you can bring us to that place. Lord, we don't have to hide. We don't have to be afraid. Thank you for what you've done in my own life, even in this last few weeks, of how you've, you're still working. I love it. I've been a follower of Jesus 20 years, and you're still working. You're still moving. You're still showing. You're still revealing areas of my life. Lord, keep doing that. Keep showing it as uncomfortable it is. Keep doing that in my life. Show me the areas where I don't trust you, where I
where I don't believe. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, help us all. We want to trust you. We want you to trust in us. We want to be your faithful disciples, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.